Amen. All right, Acts chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man, lame from birth, was being carried when they laid daily at the gate of the temple, that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. Jump over to verse 13 with us. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name by faith in his name has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your rulers, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. This is the word of the Lord. Well, yes and amen. Good morning again, Westside. We are glad that you're here this morning. And we're continuing, as you can see, um, through the book of Acts. And we are calling this Rooted and Renegade. We are rooted in God's Word, but we are renegades through the power of His Holy Spirit. And as you can see, what really the goal of this series is to go back and look through the birth of the New Testament church and ask ourselves, what do we see there is this what we're striving after? Are these the marks of West Side, just like the marks of that early church? And that's what we're striving for during this season. Um, one thing I would lay before you, as we're going through the book of Acts, um, inevitably there's going to be questions that are going to pop up in the text. They might be theological and you might go, huh, you know, Pastor Jason, you didn't really get to talk much about this, but what about this? I was actually just speaking to, uh, to some people in the lobby this morning about some questions. Listen, we want to answer those questions, and we actually have a forum um, called uh, The Rest of the Sermon. It's our podcast, and what we do is it releases on Wednesdays, and what we do is we recap and go a little bit, diver, uh, a little bit deeper dive into the content 
of the sermon. And so if you have any questions about the text or anything that pops up, please shoot us an email at info at westsidepb.org and we will shout you out and answer that question on the podcast. Well, hey, listen, um, if you need to get caught up with where we are in Acts, we're finally in chapter 3. Um, we've been in Acts for a little bit, and the reason why is because we took our time going through Acts chapter 2. And before we dive in today, I think it's significant to remind us where we've been on this journey. And so as you see, the first thing as we look at review is that Acts 2 is the moment that Christianity becomes a movement. Um, before Acts chapter 2, it was just 120 disciples locked up in a room, um, afraid for their lives. And then we see on the day of Pentecost, through the power of the Holy Spirit, that God empowers these leaders and immediately uh, 3,000 plus people are added to the church. Christianity becomes a movement in Acts chapter 2. But the second thing that we see is Acts 2 is the birth of the New Testament church. That in verses 42 through 47, we see this little snapshot of what the application of Pentecost is. Like, what is the meaning of the power of the Holy Spirit? What is the purpose of that? What, what does that do for God's people? And we see this beautiful picture of them devoting themselves to God's word, of praying just like we prayed, of giving of their money to fulfill the mission of the church. Acts 2, 42 through 47 is the blueprint of Westside. That is what we are striving for as a church. And then the third thing is this, is that Acts 2 is the fulfillment of God's promise to give the gift of the power of the Holy Spirit. I mean, it's incredible that literally Acts 2 is the hinge that the Old Testament and New Testament sort of swing on. That in the Old Testament, God's presence dwelt in the temple, in the Holy of Holies, and they had these sacrifices and these rules and all of these regulations because nobody could approach the presence of God. But then what we see through the life, death, and resurrection is that that temple curtain was torn from top to bottom. And then God's presence now becomes available to anybody that calls on him. That's what we see. To summarize it, Acts chapter 2 is about the spirit of God in us. And, and, and how profound that is. But what Acts chapter 3 is, is Acts chapter 3 is about the spirit of God through us now. So, so we've gone from the Spirit of God being in us and how that is God's promise to now what does it look like when the Spirit of God works through us? And, and we actually get a glimpse of Acts chapter 3 in Acts chapter 2. Um, in verse 43 it says this, And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. What we see in Acts chapter 3 is the first recorded miracle that is done through the apostles in Jesus' name. Now, the reason why that's significant is actually for a number of reasons. But if you remember, the author Luke started this book and he said, hey, um, this is actually a sequel so this is like Avengers Part 2. The first one was Luke's Gospel by his name, which is a biography of Jesus. But in Acts chapter 1, Luke says, um, I actually wrote a gospel 
that talked about everything Jesus began to do and teach. And what Acts chapter 2 is, is the continuation of that through his people known as the church. And so today in Acts chapter 3, we are looking at up front these signs and miracles that the apostles perform. And before we dive into the text, I think I have to do a little bit of work because inevitably we're talking about a big subject today. We are talking about miracles, and we're talking about these signs, which is um, another word for miracles. And the moment that I say that now in 2021, there's a number of questions that pop up in your mind. So, so just as a quick preview, I want to answer a few of these questions so then we can continue on into the text. Um, the first question is this, what is a miracle? Like, how are we defining the word here? Because some of y'all are like, I got to church on time today. Miracle. <laughs> right? You're like, my family didn't fight on the way to church. Miracle. Okay, right? Like, how are we using this word? Okay? How are we going to define our theological statements here? Because it's really important to do that. Well, let's work with this definition. A miracle is an extraordinary move of God that authenticates the message of the gospel. That's a miracle. You see, oftentimes we have a short-sighted definition of a miracle, and it ends on just the event itself. So many of us would agree that a miracle is an extraordinary move of God. Wow, that's awesome, that's great. But that's only half of the definition. You see, the rest of the miracle is to authenticate the message of the gospel, which leads us to the second question. What is the point of a miracle? Because think about this. A lot of these miracles involve healing. Now, now, now follow me. This is the way my mind works. If the miracle involves healing and somebody like blind Bartimaeus or as we see the lame man in the text today gets healed, and Bartimaeus receives sight, which, by the way, when Pastor Tyler read that, I'm always so struck by when Jesus asks blind Bartimaeus, what do you want me to do for you? Um, well, I'm kind of blind, okay? Like, um, because that means something. That means the physical healing can't be the end goal because... Blind Bartimaeus, the lame beggar, even think Lazarus, who was raised from the dead, still die. I mean, think about this. If we're going there, we're going there today. What is the point of a miracle? And, and listen, if I could just boil this down, this is what your kids are learning in kids' side today, and it's this. The point of a miracle is to point to Jesus. That's the point of a miracle. Is that, is that the miracle does something, that it deflects to something greater. So what is a miracle? We've defined it. What is a point of a miracle? And then the big question. Um, why don't we see miracles today like we do in Bible days? That's the question that a lot of people have. Um, there's a number of ways that I could answer this. Number one, I would say that, that we actually do. Um, in a lot of places. Primarily, very interesting, it's not so much in the American Western church 
as much as it is our brothers and sisters in China and in Africa where there is poverty and there is perfect, uh, persecution. As Leonard Ravenhill said, if the Holy Spirit is called the great comforter and the American church does not feel the Spirit's presence, that must mean that the American church is far too comfortable and it doesn't need comforting. So I would say that we actually do, but to answer it in a couple ways, the first one is this. Um, because of God's common grace in the advancement of human medicine. Now, um, just a moment ago, we were praying for people and anointing them with oil. If I were to come visit you in the hospital, one of the first things that I pray and one of the first things that I thank God for is what theologians call the common grace the common grace of human medicine, that please listen to me, that if you go into the hospital and receive treatment for something through medicine and through the advancement of human technology, we as Christians still believe that God used the means of medicine and technology to heal your body. We believe that. And you got to understand, back in those days, there wasn't even penicillin. There wasn't hand sanitizer by the gallons like there is today. All of these type of things. So one of the reasons why we don't see it quite like that is because it is a different day. But we do still see it. It just looks different. The second thing is this. Because of God's sovereign plan of redemption. Theologians would call this literally God's sovereign plan of redemption because God is now establishing the New Testament church. This has never happened before. The Holy Spirit has never dwelt permanently in people. The Holy Spirit has never worked through people like he is in the New Testament. And so in order to establish and authenticate the New Testament church, God is doing some extraordinary things. Think of the example, just like Moses and the people of Israel being led out of the captivity of slavery. God moved in extraordinary ways because it was an extraordinary time in God's sovereign plan of redemption. But I would also say this. Because of the hardening of the human heart, now we're on it. We are like on it now. Romans chapter 1, 1 Timothy chapter 1 would say that in the last days, one of the premier signs of Jesus' second coming and his return is the hardening of the human heart toward the things of God. And so now explanations um, that in years past society as a majority would have said, well, that's clearly a gift of God. Now we explain away and give ourselves credit. What C.S. Lewis would say is that it is the hardening of the human heart, that the closer we get to the end of Jesus' return, the harder and harder people will deny that that is either a miracle or a sign or God working. But then the last reason I think is this, because we don't see the ordinary everyday miracles of God as a miracle. Real quick, let's do this. Everybody take a deep breath in. Now you can let it out. 
It's a gift of God. Colossians 1 would say that God sustains the universe by the power of His Word. That the sun rose on this broken world this morning. That God's mercy shined new today. That that in and of itself, as the psalmist would say, is a miracle of God. So I think for some of these reasons and, and, and many, many others, I think that can help us now arrive to Acts chapter 3. And, and one of the things that's important as we start on this is to understand that word that was used in Acts 2 when it says many signs were being done. Why would Luke use the word sign? It's, it's also it's synonymous with miracle in the scriptures. Because actually John, when he's describing Jesus' miracles, in John chapter 2 he says these, or John chapter 4 he says these words. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. John says, now, this was the second miracle or sign. Why are they using the word sign? Okay, let's put the jelly on the bottom shelf this morning. What does a sign do? It announces something. It points to something. It, it gives you a direction. Um, a few weeks back, I, I had the privilege of performing a wedding, and it was about an hour and 15, hour and 20 minutes um, outside of town, and it was where you don't get any sort of cell service, so you can't do the Google Maps stuff and all of those things. And what the uh, wedding party said is, we've put up signs with little balloons that point to the direction as to where the ceremony is. And so listen, I want you to think of a miracle just like that. That a miracle is a sign that is pointing to something. That it is giving us directions to something. And so today I've entitled the sermon, A Map for Your Miracle. And, and, and through the help of a lot of other scholars and theologians, I believe that you can lay this grid. We're going to look at three things today. And I believe that you can lay this grid or this map on every single miracle that you see within the New Testament. And they all have a common denominator. And then in turn, the application is to lay that map over our lives and to see what lines up. So if we need a map for our miracle, what do these signs or these miracles point to? Well, the first thing that I see is this, is that miracles point upward to the king. That's what we said. If there was a big idea in a thesis today, it is that a point of a miracle is to point to Jesus. Look at what Peter says right there in verse 6. So this lame man, and, and, and notice, Luke says that he was lame from birth and was being carried and he was laid daily at the gate of the temple. Listen, you've got to understand something about ancient times. That they would have looked at this man and said, it would be better off if you weren't living, rather than having to live under these type of circumstances. From birth, and then daily for his majority of his life, he has had to beg and depend on and ask for money and be dependent of, upon the mercy of other people. 
And so as he is there at the temple, what they would do is they would lay them in front of the entrance of the temple because they knew when people went into the temple that they were giving money in the temple. So if you got them on the way out, you're not going to get as much money as if you were sort of on the way in there. And so he's laying there and he's asking for money. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have... I give to you. And then this is like, I mean, this is one of the coolest verses in all of the New Testament. The King James is unmatched. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, stand up, rise up, and walk. And the dude does it. I mean, it is in, I mean, Peter thunders these words and it takes place. What's interesting here is that later on when Peter's explaining the miracle, he says, through faith, through faith in the name of Jesus. And then here, Peter drops the name of Jesus. Peter doesn't say, um, through the power of the Holy Spirit in me, rise up and walk. Peter doesn't say that. Peter says, in the name of Jesus Christ, In the power of Jesus Christ, stand up and walk. The miracle is doing something. It's pointing to something. Um, Whenever I was in junior high school around the sixth grade, we moved back to Kennett, um, or I'm sorry, we moved back to Dallas where I was born. And so I was born in Garland, Texas, and so I'm a Cowboys fan. Go Cowboys, whoop, whoop, okay, right? Um, and I remember when we were going to a Christian school, and there was all this buzz the year that we moved back to that Christian school because the school was in the process of being accredited, It was being accredited and recognized, and so these people would come and tour, and so we had to like, you know, we had these little uniforms, and girls wore culottes and stuff like that. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Okay, right? Or I'm just, if you know, you know, okay, right? And so there was all this stuff, and we were getting ready to be accredited, and it was going to be a big deal, and what the state of Texas was going to do is the state of Texas was going to accredit ACE, Accelerated Christian Education, and recognize it. When you look up the definition, the Oxford English Dictionary defines accredited as of a person or organization organization or course of study officially recognized or authorized. Now, think about what the miracle is doing. If the point of a miracle is to point to Jesus, then this miracle in Acts chapter 3 is doing something and it's doing this. Miracles are not the end goal. We have got to understand that. Miracles are not the end goal. Miracles are a means to validate the gospel message and the gospel messenger. That's what's happening in this moment. That as Peter has been given this power, he says it in the name of Jesus. And then everybody standing around knows, wait a second. There's something else at work here. This guy is legit, and what he is saying has got to be legit because this is an extraordinary move of God. We've got to understand that miracles are not the goal. And I think for us, that's very difficult to understand 
because it meets a very real need that we have. But as we said, that the point of miracles is to point to Jesus. So follow me. Follow me. Here's what our struggle and problem is. That if the miracle is a gift, and the gift is designed to point to the giver, how many of us focus on and enjoy the gift and forget who gave it? The question is this, how often do we seek the gift over the giver? That's why at the beginning of the sermon, I had to do a lot of work and establish some things. Because in the name of Jesus Christ, some people have used and abused the teaching of miracles. And oftentimes you'll see a guy on TV and there's a lady on stage with him who looks like she lost a paintball fight. And there's all kinds of makeup and all kinds of gold thrones and crazy stuff. And if you just send in money and if you just this and if you just that. And then if you and listen, at the end of the day, what that is, is a prosperity gospel. That is sinking health, wealth, and gifts over the giver. And what the Bible says is that's how broken the human heart is, is that we would literally have the gift and not have the giver. But what we see this miracle doing is that this miracle is pointing to Jesus, that the miracle is not the end goal. It's a means to an end. But the second thing that I see is this, is that miracles point forward to the kingdom. It's not just pointing to Jesus. It's also pointing to the very kingdom of God. Because if you look right there in verse 8, notice what Luke says here. Luke is a doctor. And notice these words. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk, and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. There in the verses, when Luke talks about his ankles, there in verse 7, and he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. The word feet and ankles is only used there in the entire New Testament. It's, it's literally an old Greek word that we still use today in orthopedics and stuff like that. Luke is describing in very great detail something that we need to know. But why does he say leaping, leaping, leaping over and over and over again? You see, it's outside the temple. And everybody that's going inside the temple would have been of the Jewish heritage. They would have known what was taking place here. Because there was an old prophecy that Isaiah in the Old Testament prophesied something. And he said, when the Messiah comes, when God in the flesh really comes, we're going to see things. And some of these things that we see are fulfillment that God's kingdom that's in heaven is now coming down here on earth. And in the book of Isaiah, he says these words in Isaiah 35. Say to those who have an anxious heart. Anybody in here have an anxious heart today? This is for you. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance with the recompense of God, he will come and save you. 
And then the eyes of the blind shall see, and they shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. What is this miracle doing? This miracle is pointing to something and it's saying that the king has arrived and God's kingdom as it was in heaven is now breaking in here on earth. That's why when we gather this morning and we pray and we lay hands and we sing and we anoint with oil, please listen to me, Westside. What we believe is that we are pushing back darkness that we are pushing back the darkness and the brokenness of this world. And we are saying, thy kingdom come and thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But it's pointing us to that great and glorious day when Jesus comes again. And please listen to me. There will be no more funerals. There will be no more doctor's offices. There will be no more tears. There will be no more grief anymore. I believe that every human heart longs for that. And when we see God move in an extraordinary way, what it is, what it is, well, I love this. I love what Pastor Timothy Keller said this. He asked the question, how come when somebody does a miracle, they don't do something like Superman style? They're not like seeing into the next room and they're like, oh, you know, how many fingers am I holding up like on Bruce Almighty or something like that? Like seven, like, whoa, that blows my mind. Or like, you know, just do some of these showy things. How come all of the miracles either involve healing or the casting out of demons? And then he says this. Notice that all of the miracles alleviate suffering, brokenness. Why? He says these words. Why didn't Jesus ever show off his powers in miracles with like x-ray vision or something? Why is it that all the miracles alleviate suffering? Because it's pointing forward to the end of all things. To the end of history when God restores all things. And here is what we learn. God did not invent blindness or sickness. God did not invent lameness. God didn't create a world with suffering and death. But God God came into a world of suffering and death. You see, I believe the reason why that's so important to know is because that's the answer as to why everything is broken. And we all know it. We know that this isn't the way that it's supposed to be. Why don't relationships just work easy on coast and on cruise? How come there is suffering in the world? It's because there is brokenness. And what a miracle does, and when we see God move in an extraordinary way, it's, it's sort of like this. Um, one of the things that I love to do, and you know, sort of pre-COVID and all of that craziness, is I really love going and, and watching movies. But um, if you and I are going to be friends, and we're going to go see a movie, we need some ground rules to establish here, okay? Um, the first one is this. If the movie starts at 6... And you say to me, 
well, we can get there after six because there's just previews, we can't be friends, okay? <laughs> we just can't. We will not go see a movie together because I'm paying $47, okay, to go see this movie, and I love um, previews of, of movies that are to come, coming attractions, if you will. What a miracle is, a miracle is a preview of a coming attraction of the very kingdom of God. And when we see God do these extraordinary things, we're reminded this is what it's going to be like forever in God's kingdom. Miracles point upward to the king. Miracles point forward to the kingdom. But the last thing is this. Miracles point inward to the brokenness. You see, that's what's all over this. Why does Peter, and why is it recorded that there's more verses explaining the miracle than there is verses about the miracle? Here's what I'm saying. Why does Peter preach a sermon after the miracle? Well, notice the words. Go back to what he says in verse 6. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have... I give to you. Why is it significant that when this man is asking for material goods, Peter essentially said, please don't miss this. Peter says, you don't need material goods. You need something greater than that. Because at this point, this man's expectation of God or a request that he would have is that God would maybe bless him with some money. Yes? Right. And I bet this man thinks, if I could just get an X amount of dollars, things would be so much better in my life. But then Peter ratchets it up another level and says, get up and walk. And now this man's mind's blown because he would think that the greatest thing that could ever happen in my life is that I could regain the use of my legs again. I mean, he's thought every day, probably not an hour goes by, that he wished that he could use his legs. And then think about the audacity that Peter comes along and says, you think your greatest need is either money or the use of your legs. And you know what Peter could have done? Peter could have pointed at all the people standing around and said, look, Look at all these people that have use of their legs. But look at how many of them aren't happy. You see, now we're getting to it. Now we're getting under the thing. Peter is saying, you think your greatest need is a physical healing. But what if, what if the thing you think you need most in your life is actually not your greatest need? Now, follow me with this. Some of you have been praying for something, asking God, beseeching him, and you think that it's your greatest need, and God has not answered that prayer, and maybe you feel a little disappointed in your expectations because technically, Jesus did not fulfill this man's expectations. He asked for money, and he didn't get money. He got something that he actually needed 
more of. So what if the very thing that you're praying about in your life is actually not your greatest need, and you find yourself being a little bit disappointed, I'm here to say and tell you this, what if God is giving and working in your life something greater that you don't even realize that you need? Because the greatest need that every single person has is a relationship with God the Father based on the grace and forgiveness of Jesus Christ. Please hear me. The greatest miracle in the world is salvation. When somebody who is far from God and a rebel in their heart and mind, as the Bible would say, that God saves them and crosses them from death to life and makes that rebel person now a child of his, that's the greatest miracle in the world. You see, we believe that everything flows from this. That the greatest need is not physical. The greatest need is absolutely spiritual. So, what's our application of this? How are we supposed to respond? That if a miracle points to something, and the point of a miracle is to point to Jesus, then our response should now be to look at Jesus. And so how are we supposed to respond to that? Well, look at what Peter says in verse 19. He gives us the solution. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. What's the application? Repent. That's always the application. That's always the point. It's the point for the non-believer and the believer. But what is repentance? Because some of us grew up with repentance almost being like a dirty word. Like it was angry and somebody on the street corner yelling, repent for the day of the Lord is close or something like that. Do you know what repentance is? Repentance is turning from sin and turning to Jesus. That's what it is. Peter says, turn, repent therefore, and turn back from your sins. But then turn to Jesus. Do you know what many of us are good at? Many of us live a life with only half the definition of repentance. And so our life consists of struggling with sin, confessing with sin, struggling with sin, confessing with sin, trying to leave sin, struggling with sin, confessing with sin. But here's what you need to know about the human heart. The human heart was made to worship. So when you remove that idol from your heart, you have to replace it with something. And the most powerful thing that you can do is to replace it with a greater love. So it's not just turning from sin. That's half a definition. The full definition is turning from sin and turning to Jesus. So in closing, if the point of a miracle is to point to Jesus... What is our response as we look to this beautiful Savior that we have? And repentance being the end game and the goal. I've shared the story before of Joni Erickson Tata. Joni lived a life as a young woman, very healthy and vibrant. And then one day she went swimming and dove in and heard a crack. And from that moment forward, she became a quadriplegic and is confined to this chair. She has a very profound ministry. Um, she speaks at many conferences and writes many, many books. 
And I thought about Joni this week as I was thinking about the lame man and, and the use of the legs. And Joni records this in one of her blog posts. I grew up in a little congregation where they read the gospel, sang hymns from the heart. And I always remember on Sunday they kneeled in prayer. Sunday worship was serious business and I learned as a child what it meant to bend my knee before the Lord. I mean, obviously God listens whether His people pray standing or sitting or lying prostrate. So what's my point about the whole kneeling thing? Well, I just wish I could do it. You see, being paralyzed, it's impossible for me to kneel for prayer. One time at a convention, the speaker closed his message by asking everyone in the room to kneel on the floor for prayer. As I watched all 500 people get down on their knees, I was moved. But all of them except me. I cried, not because I felt awkward, but because I was struck with the beauty of seeing so many people bow in worship. Then here it is, don't miss it. I breathed this prayer. Lord Jesus, I can't wait for the day when I will rise up on resurrected legs because the first thing I will do then is to drop down on grateful knees. That's somebody who understands a miracle. That's somebody who understands an extraordinary move of God in their life is not about just the extraordinary move of God. The extraordinary move of God points to my relationship with God. Yes, God can bring your prodigal grandchild home. Yes, God can heal you of cancer. Yes, God can do these things. But that's not the end game. The end game is for you to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and all your strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. That's the end goal. And it is time for us to repent of loving the gifts over the giver. So in closing today, I have a few questions for you. The first one is this. What miracle do you need God to move in your life? We believe that he can do it. But the next question is this. What do you most need to remind yourself about the gospel right now? Because that's why God wants to move in your life. God wants to move in your life and give you a miracle so you can fall in love with the gospel in a whole new way today. And then this, what is the Spirit speaking to you today? And then the last question is this, what are you going to do about it? What's the point of a miracle? The point of a miracle is to point to Jesus. Heavenly Father, God, we come before you today so grateful for your word, so grateful that we can see how you move in our lives. God, the mighty acts that you move in our life point to a king that sits on a throne that rules the universe with his feet up, and today we find rest in that. God, you move in our lives to point forward to a preview of coming attractions of what it's going to be like with you for all eternity. But God, that miracle points to our brokenness. God, we are the lame man in this passage. We are unable to come to you. We need the power of your Holy Spirit and we need you to move in our life to come to us. 
I love that this man thought that he had to move to the temple to get close to God. But unbeknownst to him, he was encountering a God that moves closer to us. And today you move into our hearts and into our minds. Holy Spirit, have your way with us. We pray all of these things in the strong name, in the name where there is power, in the name that brings healing, in the name of Jesus Christ, we pray these things. Amen. Westside, would you stand?